This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and it's my pleasure to have Aaron Goff of Goff Customs here. Before we get into it with him, I got to do a little bit of work. We got to talk about this. Our sponsors to the show. The first one is my friends at AK Interactive. That's the Golden Kalani, Andreas Kalani. He is going to change the way you do business. I know you're alone. You're in your garage, you're hanging out, and and you're trying to make it work, but you need a good website, and that's the problem. The website's going to be your assistant, and he's going to help you. So if you go to akinteractive.com slash full blast, he's going to give you 10% off on your website. And what will happen is is you'll fill out the paperwork, he's going to give you a call, we'll figure it out. He'll make your website scalable for you. It'll figure out what you want to do. You'll be able to do if you want to use shops, Shopify or Wix or WordPress. He knows how to use all those common platforms. He's made incredible websites for Steve Schwarzer, Mike Tyree, Don Nguyen, Will Brigham, Lou Delmar. He does a great job, and he's willing to give 10% off to the listeners of the Full Blast podcast. You put in Full Blast 10. I'm telling you, if you get a good website, it's going to be like an assistant. It's going to be the person that, it's going to be the thing that answers the questions for your customers. It's going to work while you're asleep. It's going to work while you're asleep. When you're on vacation, it's going to work. So go get yourself a great website from AK Interactive. Go to akinteractive.com slash full blast and get yourself that 10% off. Then... When you figure out what you're going to make and you need to quote your wood or your axes, your hammers or whatever, your leather, get yourself something that you can feel good about. Food safe axe wax is awesome. And what will happen is, is you can use it, especially if you're making culinary knives. Let's say I just finished off some walnut handle uh, knives and I actually finished a, a stabilized handle of uh, bourbon barrel oak and wine barrel oak. And I used axe wax. And what I liked about it is I was able to be able to say to my customers, this is food safe. There's no icky byproducts. and they're going to make you sick or whatever. And it's great. And if you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off. And if you're in the UK, go check out UK Knife Supplies. Toby's going to honor Full Blast uh, 10. They're going to give you 10% off on, on your axe wax. Definitely do it. It's great. And I appreciate Axe Wax and AK Interactive for sticking with me. They're, they're, they re-up all the time. They're, they're happy with the results, and we're happy too. So thank you very much to, the, to you two. My guest is someone, if I were to give a list of people who have been influential in the building of my business as learning how to make a knife maker, Aaron Goff is on that short list. Aaron Goff is the is the main man at Goff Customs. He's also, besides being the innovator of the uh, Resolute Mark III, I'm sure there's going to be other ones, he's also probably responsible for the, the, the creation of knife makers across the world with his incredible YouTube videos. Aaron, this is my pleasure. How are you? I'm very good, mate. Your, your podcast game is on point. Listen... I have been, li- I've been listening to radio. The radio ra- raised me. My parents were divorced. Mm. That was what's called. I don't know if you know, if you, you're probably too young to know about what a latchkey kid is. A latchkey kid was a kid who, uh, you know, for in the 70s and the 80s, 
parents were divorced. They all had to, everybody had to work. And the kid was given the keys to go home after school, and he's all home alone. I was alone a lot, and right. I would listen to the radio, and I listened to all sorts of radio. And I felt like not only was I being kept company, but there were funny moments, and there were these live moments. And, and the other thing is, is my dad, who I always wanted to make laugh, he always listened to the radio, and it made him laugh. And I just, I love radio. So this is, to me, this is, like, very important. It's interesting the things that end up having that effect on our lives, isn't it? It's not, but it isn't surprising. I mean, everything always, you know, every, I believe that everyone's behavior comes from uh, positive and negative traumas of, of childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly. Yeah, totally. So let's, just before we get into, before we get into deep talk, how are you, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, not too bad. I actually had the, the weekend off, which was nice. I've been trying to do that a bit more recently. Really? <laughs> the last, uh, yeah, I mean, you know what running a small business is like. I would say like the last, you know, six or seven years, there hasn't been very many weekends off. Right. Well, the, you know, it is, is interesting you say that because when I, my, the last metal shop that I was in before I kind of struck it out on myself we had to work weekends. You worked Saturdays and it was hard. It was hard on my family and, um, you know, obviously get double time, but at the same time or overtime. And then, but at the same time it was like, was it, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze in terms of my family. So mm-hmm. when I started fader knives, I was working Saturdays and then right up until the pandemic, because my kid was home alone and because I, I felt like there was a real depression in the house, I stopped working Saturdays and Sundays to be with my family. And it was a giant change in the relationship with my kid. It was a giant relationship with my wife. And it was really like, I'm sticking to it. I'm not going to work weekends anymore. Yeah. And I show that they appreciate that, you know? Um, yeah. Like my, so my dad has always worked uh, a lot and has worked for some very big companies. And a lot of that work took him overseas when I was younger. You know, so there are many times when he was in China or Vietnam or something for like six months at a time. Really? Yeah. What did he do? Um, so he works in marketing and advertising. So he's he was like uh, head of marketing for Australasia for Burger King for a long time. Huh. Um, he had a marketing agency in Vietnam that he set up because there was no there was no like Western agencies in Vietnam. So it would be like local agencies that that couldn't deliver to like the standards that the big international companies were expecting. So he actually set up an agency over there. Um, so yeah, just like, it makes a big difference when you have both your parents around, you know, so I'm sure your daughter really appreciates that. Well, I tell you what, it's interesting you say that because my grandfather on my mother's side was in business in South America and he would be gone for, he was working for an exporter uh, in South America and mm-hmm. he ended up living in Mexico City six months out of the year. And it was really hard on the family to the point where, you know, he would be away for a long time. And then the mother, you know, my grandmother was had a real hard time raising her three kids who were kind of crazy and looking for, you know, where's, you know, kind of thinking, where's dad? I mean, I mean, they weren't saying that, I'm sure, but it was like, you can't not think that. And then after six months, he shows up and it's like, you know, life's supposed to go back to normal. It, it was yeah. it was very hard on the family, very hard on the family, very, especially hard on my grandmother who, who you know, ultimately most likely suffered, you know, gravely from it. Yeah, 100%. You know, and like I had a, a much larger hand in like helping raise my younger sisters than I probably otherwise would have. But, you know, like I don't have any regrets or, or anything about that. I think that, you know, oh, of those, course. 
those processes shape who you end up being as a as a person you know 100 percent. what was that like i mean you you grew up in australia mm -hmm. um what made you decide to come go to move to canada Oh, it's always a girl, isn't it, Jeff? Is it? I don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't move. I didn't move anywhere. I, listen, I met my wife in, in, in college, and she, I, she said, "Where are you from?" And I said, "I'm from New York." She said, "Let's go to New York." I'm like, "Okay, come home. Come to New York." I, I didn't go anywhere. For I, we think I was going to move to Wisconsin. For, for no, forget it. You moved to Canada. You moved. To, okay, all right, now bring it. Bring the story home. Let's let's find out why you moved to Canada. Well, yeah. So, like after high school, I started dating this girl that I met, and um, her mother was working in canada and had been away from the family for quite a long time so the rest of the family was, was going to move to canada to to join her and um i was like okay let's go to canada you know um so i was really originally only supposed to be here like and my girlfriend at the time um she and i were only supposed to be in canada for like eight or nine months you know it was supposed to be kind of a visit and um i just i fell in love with the place man like Huh. Australia's fantastic. I, you know, I, I love um, where my parents live. I love being around my parents, but it, it doesn't have the like depth of like hobby opportunities and culture and like the the cultural mixing pot that Canada right. has. You know, um, so I, I really I found the change really refreshing. And I don't know. I was also kind of like a, a you know the awkward kid at school, bit of an ugly duckling. You know, so it was interesting to move so far away and be able to like reinvent myself just be who i wanted to be without that social pressure of all your friends from high school being around all the time you know but it must have been must some of that confidence must have been come from the fact that your father would go away and leave for a while and it must have been the kind of like that's kind of what you do i don't know i i've never really thought about that actually um I, like i wasn't super happy in my job in australia at that point and you know like i was just like you know what let's hit the reset button on this shit let's go wow. do something else you know and I mean, so what did you do when did, when you came to Canada? What did you, what did you do? What did you do when you were in Canada? I mean, you're just I, out of high school. So I mean, it couldn't have been that much. Um, I was working construction, um, you know, just like working for a general contractor. And I don't know, I spent at one point, I spent a week in a basement refinishing a really fancy door, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, it wasn't anything too exciting, but then, I mean, I've been always been, programming and, and doing computer work when I was a kid. So I ended up um, kind of leveraging that and getting into uh, like making websites, like what your friend AK Interactive is doing, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, that kind of work for like small businesses. And then that transitioned into me being like our, an actual connection is uh, software, quote unquote, engineer uh, and, and working for startup companies. I guess it's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll call with it. We're still we're we're still going. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. We're not cutting that out. So when you when you decided, let's press ignore here. When you decided to uh, hold on a second, hold on a second, everybody. Okay, we're all right. We're gonna be fine. We're gonna run with this. So when you decided to get into, I mean, my last guest, Keith Decent, got into websites early. You guys seem like around the same age where you're able hmm. to like figure that stuff out outside of like a school, what possessed you to want to get into computers? Um, video games and then artificial intelligence. Huh. Those, those were the two things that kind of hooked me in. I like, I was, and still am like super into science fiction. Like I, I don't read anything other than science fiction. Really? <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I don't know why, I don't know why that happened, but I just, I really love the like, interesting forward-looking 
stuff that comes up in science fiction, you know? Huh. Um, and a big part of science fiction is this, like, assumption that we're going to have, like, AIs that will, like, you know, look after us or try and kill us or <laughs> somewhere in between one of those two. And um, so, yeah, I started, like, I played a lot of video games and I started, like, mucking around with it, like, changing out the, the you know, sound files that, that the enemies would speak to you. So when, when you shoot them, they'd be like, oh, fuck, instead of going, like, ow, you know. And then that kind of morphed into, like, you know, really mucking around with the the game, ins- the like the internals of the games themselves, and I got more and more interested in the like AI side of things, um, and that kind of is what drove me getting into to programming. It was you know very uh, primitive at the start, of course, but like it's a lot of fun. That field has obviously changed a lot since I started messing around with it. You know, it's, what it, what interests me about your work now as a knife maker. Is I I know that you you have done the computer work. I know that in the past couple of years you've kind of gone back to computer work to make some in, uh, to, to make a little bit extra money in software programming. What interests mm-hmm. me about your work is your work is very. And we're going to hop back and forth. We're going to hop back and forth. But what interests me is your work is so computer based because you're using CNC machines and you're programming the CNC machines. I had this opinion that I was just like, you know, what must have been like if you're doing if you're doing uh, software and computer programming you're getting these very consistent uh, results there's not like there's no outside yeah. there's no outside uh things that are stopping you from your programming working and the fact that you can now you're taking this the, the programming and you're able to like make a physical man you're being able to manifest a physical action from the programming it must be mm-hmm. very very rewarding it is, yeah, hundred percent. And like, it's actually kind of difficult for me with programming these days because you know most of the like programming work that I would be qualified to do for like a startup company or whatever is not is not physical. It's all just some bullshit talking to a database. Right. You know, not not stuff that really interests me. You know, um, but with the knife making, I'm not necessarily doing so much programming as I am like you know CAD, like CAD design. Um, and, you know, fixture design and that kind of stuff to, to make the knives. But yeah, as you said, like it, I really like that the transition of like the digital stuff that making a physical object. Cause, cause the other thing, I mean, that's the thing about, com- I mean, computer programming and it's a very set, it's a very finite, uh, action and that they're not outside forces that are going to make it a positive thing or a negative thing. There's not outside forces in mm-hmm. the computer that are going to stop you from getting your end result as opposed to what you're doing now. Uh, your, your knives, the, uh, the resolute, uh, Mark three is, is substantial. It's a, it's an incredible knife. Would you say that, I mean, I'm just going to go out and say that it's like 80%, 80% completely done with CNC machines. I mean, a little bit of finishing here, a little bit of finishing there. but Yeah, something like that. I mean, one of the interesting things is that like, you know, so you, I, I had the pleasure of getting to make you a knife recently, which was amazing. Thank I have it right here. Um, yeah, and you and, I, you and I talked a little bit about that because I made it in a steel that I don't normally use. And then it's interesting you're saying that, like, there's not that many outside factors that would, you know, affect you getting the result that you want. And f- from the outside, when I was going into, you know, CNC machining, that's exactly what I thought. Right. It was like, everything's going to come out perfect right. every time. But there's so much stuff that sneaks in, you know. So, for instance, with that knife that I made you, 
um, I cut the outside profile of the knife before heat treatment. And then I heat treated the steel while it's still flat, but it's knife shaped. And it turns out that that particular steel actually shrinks <laughs> during heat treatment. So now all of my like, you know, the holes that I use to hold my handle scales on the pinholes are very, very close tolerance. And even though that steel only shrank like, you know, half a percent in terms of length, my handle scales wouldn't right. fit on anymore. Um, and there's, there's like a thousand things like that that can and, and do go wrong that you end up having to control for. And it's actually one of the more interesting parts is that, you know, they say that the difference between theory and practice is that in theory there's no difference, and in practice there is. Um, it's it's kind of like that with the, the CNC machining. You know, you, you expect that you're going to get a perfect result out of it, but there's so many other factors like material moving, the tool wear, um, you know, the machines themselves aren't perfect. All of this stuff comes into play to make getting exactly the result you want, actually surprisingly difficult. This is what fascinates me because that's what exactly what I was getting to. I was watching your video uh, recently about you. It was about fixing uh, a, a fixture plate. You had, you had yeah. made a, you'd, you'd, you'd fit, you'd found that the feeling between, between the, uh, basically the spine of the knife and the scales, you felt something and you wanted to adjust, mm-hmm. you wanted to adjust your fixture plate so when the tool path would go, would cut the piece out, you would have a you'd have a, a slight you'd have a slighter you take a little bit more off. And it was a really interesting it was a really interesting video. And I'm watching this video. You're taking out the pins. You're putting you're welding in new pins and you're drilling new. You did a whole video on it, and I was just like, this is why it's so frustrating because you know you write a program to do a video game. I mean the program is the program, but if you're yeah. writing something to make this knife. Your tool bit, your, I know that you, well, you rotate out your bits because all of a sudden, as they get dull, you have to use them as the roughing bits. And then they're finishing passes yep. with the new bits. And because there's so much wear, it almost throws all the programming out the window because you have to factor in these, these physical things that wear out. And it just, all of a sudden, it just dawned on me while I was watching these videos. I was just like, this, for whoever thinks that he just pressed the button and the knife spits out. It's crazy. I almost feel like it's harder for you to make a knife than it is for me to make a knife. Yeah, and I mean, so as you know, I've made a lot of knives by hand as well. Um, And this is a topic that comes up, and people are always kind of surprised. But I would say, yeah, 100%, it's harder for, um, like, to make a knife with CNC than it is by hand. The, The payoff is that once everything is working and once you work out all of the pitfalls, and, you know, if you're willing to kind of let things be the same for a while, then it can be smooth. You know, like it, the, the amount of input needed at that point is much lower. But setting up that process, getting everything to the point where it's actually running smoothly is just brutal. It, you know, it, it can be very demoralizing at times. But the fact remains is I brought this knife to show some friends of mine who are blacksmiths and, and knife makers. And I told mm-hmm. them, I'm like... This was easily 80% done by machine. And they were looking at it and they were like, Are you sure? Really? It was, they were like, it was almost as if it was like, it was a complete surprise. It was so clean. Really? Not, not, that they, not that they thought that it was like, you know, a mistake. It, it, they thought that it was just incredible that you could get that kind of finish by, without, by hand, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, it, I mean, they're, they're, it's extraordinary. I've been a fan of getting back to it. So, just getting back into what you know your YouTube page too 
is I was a blacksmith for a long time, fabricator, and then I really, you know, if you talk to, if you took most blacksmiths and then asked them if they made knives, they some of them would be like, of course I don't make knives. Are you nuts? Like there's a, there is something with blacksmiths that there is a good percentage of them that think that bladesmiths are like. They they roll their eyes. This is like uh, this is like LARPing. This is like uh, you know role play. I'm not interested. I want to make you know we're making railings here. We're making finials and doors and gates and hammers and stuff. We're not making knives. So I was in that game that plant that way a long time, and I never made knives. And then my friend Matt Paul was teaching a class at my friend John Ledford's place, and he and they asked me if I'd come and just be an assistant, help with the tanks, you know, forging, you know, the anvil, make sure. I'm, mm-hmm. And I was just like, ah, you know what, this, this is running pretty good. Let me see if I can knock out a knife too. And for me, the forging of a knife was so like it, the forging of the knife was came relatively easy. I mean, it isn't. No matter what any bladesmith tells you, forging knives is not as hard as you think it is. I mean, it, it does take some time and practice, but it's really, and we were, I was talking to John afterwards. I was like, you know, I could do this. This is really cool. And then I learned about heat treating. I learned about all the other things and it was a little bit tougher. And John says to me, mm-hmm. John says to me, he's like, you know, this would be really cool, but I wonder if people would like them if they were not so forged and rough. Like, cause you know, you're not nowadays. It's a lot, lot much more appreciated that they're forged, the forged scale on the on the spine and stuff like that. And he started talking. about was like, maybe we should just figure this whole stock removal thing out. And I'd never heard of stock removal. And I went onto YouTube and I found your web page. I found your I found your YouTube page and I watched your video on how you make knives. You. I, there, my, my wife must have thought I was crazy. I was watching one night. I watched all your videos, and I was like, your videos were so easily to under, easy to understand, and you were using minimal tools. There's one video where you're doing the whole thing with a hacksaw, and one of the early ones, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. to myself, this dude loves to suffer. He loves to suffer, <laughs> and it was so it was so easy to understand and so well done. And I've ever since I watched that. Anytime someone says you have a resource that I should use to watch, you know, for knife making, I always push them to your YouTube page because it's so good. What Thanks, what man. did when did you decide you were going to start to make knives? And then after that, when did you decide that you were going to do a, a YouTube page about it? Um. Yeah, I guess when I started doing YouTube stuff, it was like, I don't know, YouTube was still kind of the new hotness. Everyone was just like putting stuff on there, you know, and it kind of started the same. Like the very first um, YouTube videos that I made were actually of like my amateur MMA fights. Oh, wait a, <laughs> wait a second. I thought you were a UFC fight. You were an MMA fighter? No, well, I mean, I say that uh, very loosely, you know, like I was training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I trained for pretty seriously for about four or five years um bits and pieces of like krav maga and muay thai and you know other stuff and then in toronto they had this thing called the throwdown which was like you just show up and call people out of the crowd and you know have have like a heavy sparring session with them like a fight you know we we weren't calling it uh mma fighting because that was illegal that was prize fighting in in toronto at that time there was like no money or anything it was really just like a bunch of guys that like martial arts getting together and kicking the shit out of each other the bjj is fascinating because what were you how far were you going with it um so the issue is that i really kind of got tracked into like self-defense rather than like sport fighting right like i you know sport fighting like you know in a cage or you know taekwondo or whatever it's it's very different than 
you know, if someone's trying to kill you. Like, and it's very, very hard to train with that level of like aggression and lethality in in a gym. Like, it's basically right. impossible. You know, so I started kind of looking around um, to see, you know, what else I could uh, what else I could learn, what the other approaches were. And the uh, guy that was teaching me Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu wasn't very happy about that. Why? Um, I don't know. He had this this weird thing where he couldn't decide if he was like your friend or your dad or your sensei, you know. And um, I said, "Oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and like try some other martial arts for a while. Is it okay if I still drop in and and roll with you guys? You know, that's kind of a, a thing in most gyms is that you have open mat days and people come back and roll." And he was like, "No." And that was basically the end of my Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I just I never really got back into it you know so it was it was kind of an interesting time that's uh, weird yeah it was it was a very strange situation and, and like all of the other people i know that trained with that guy have since dropped off for similar kinds of reasons you know it was just the uh the follow-through wasn't the same as as what he was saying you know hmm. um so yeah i went and tried um like krav maga for a while which is a crazy israeli martial art you right. know and they teach that in the in the military israeli military um but the main problem, again, was that, you know, when I was doing Krav Maga, they were still teaching you to punch people in the face. And I don't know if you've ever hit someone in the head with bare hands, but it's like punching a bowling ball. You know, like you're going to break your own hands. Um, especially if you're used to throwing punches, like wearing boxing boxing gloves and, you know, against a heavy bag or something. You punch someone in the head and, you know, maybe you knock them out, maybe you don't, but you break your own hand in the process, you know. And given that my, my main skill is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I don't want to have broken hands when I'm trying to defend myself. Um, so I, I ended up reading this book called um, Facing Violence. I forget the, the name of the author, but the guy is like an ex-SWAT team leader and detentions officer, and he's been stabbed like seven times and been in like hundreds of like real fights, you know, that, that could have ended his life, basically. And... In that book, he doesn't talk about punching people. He talks about situational awareness and running away. <laughs> you know, and it, it after reading that, I was like, you know what? That's real self-defense right there. You know, like trying to make sure you don't get into a situation where you're cornered and you have to use physical violence. Trying to, you know, work out the fastest way out of a situation if it, if it comes up. And none of the self-defense classes I ever took ever talked about that they never ever talked about avoiding the fight they just talked about what to do when you're in the fight you know so honestly that kind of spelled the end of my uh, martial arts stuff because i was like we're, we're training for stuff that's gonna get you in real trouble it you can know? be avoided yeah yeah exactly if you know real self-defense is avoiding the fight 90, 99% of the time. Like, if you're backed into a corner and you've got no way out, then, yeah, right. you fight your way through. But apart from that, you know? I'll tell you, uh, it's funny that you say that because the, the last almost altercation I ever had was I was helping open a restaurant up, and I was doing the... I was helping with the breakfast. It was mm. this nice place, and we lived in a kind of a, not the greatest area in Brooklyn, and I used to have to walk past this really rough area at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning to get to the restaurant. Right. And these guys started walking behind me, and they said to me, hey, can you give us some money? And I said, I don't have any money. And he goes, well, we're just going to follow you to the, till you give us some money. 
And I turned to them and I was tired. I was quiet. I was tired. I was like irritated. I said, I'm going to work at three o'clock in the morning. If I had any money, trust me, I'd give it to you. Why would I be going? To, I said, if I, if I, if, if I had money, I wouldn't be working. I wouldn't be going to a job at three o'clock in the morning. Right. And they just looked at each other and I'm like, that sounds good to me. And they walked away. Yep. And all there of a sudden go. I get to the train station. I said, Oh my God, I was almost mugged. I yeah. talked my way out of it. I said, look, I it, trust me. I don't want to be going to work at three o'clock in the morning. If I had any money, I wouldn't be doing this job. Yeah. And it was like, it made perfect sense to them. It was like very, you know, I wasn't, and it, it didn't dawn on me. And I yeah. think that there is these opportunities that people, I, I, I never, I took, I took a, taekwondo when i was a kid and i hated it and they hated me and it was really like it was uh it was not you know it was no one was happy right so um i'm i just I, when do you think that the martial arts had any effect on you getting into knife making how did you decide that you wanted to get into knife making um well like i grew up in the country and so it was like you know you carry a pocket knife around with you everywhere i was always that weird kid that had the pocket knife you know um and I decided I wanted to try, you know, making my own little pocket knife or something. And so my dad was always like going to like antique stores and stuff. And, you know, he, he, he was like wheeling and dealing in antiques as a, as a side hustle, you know, as a hobby. And so I would like buy these like beautiful, like bread knives and stuff from like the fifties the or sixties and then take them home and bench grind them into something smaller. You know, I wasn't wow. doing any favors to these antique knives. Um, and I, I probably would have been like 12 or 13 at that point. Huh. And uh, I got interested enough in it through that that I ended up um, contacting the Australian Knife Makers Guild. And they set me up with a, a local guy who, you know, showed me the ropes for a couple of years, just like an hour a week, something like that. Um, and honestly, like, I, I was too young to really take it in. I got, I got bored. I stopped doing it after a couple of years. And then... The reason I got back into it was, you know, after I'd moved to Canada, working for startup companies and stuff, at one point, there was a big turnaround in this startup company that I was working for. And it went from being like six people in the development team to just me. And we were like in the middle of a big product change. So I got the product change out and then, you know, promptly had like a mental breakdown and took like two months off work. And during that point in time, during that period of time, I, I joined like a shared workshop space and just like chatting with one of the guys there. And he's like, Oh, you used to make knives. Like, can you make me one? And that was it. That's, that's how I got back into it. You know? Um, it's funny how it just, things just happen sometimes. That must've been a really hard time in your life. Yeah, it was shitty. Um, so my grandfather, I'm like really, I was really close with, um, you know, he, he's a big part of the reason why I was interested in, in making stuff. Um, he had cancer for about 15 or 16 years. Oh my god! Yeah, toughest bastard you've ever met. Like he had um, melanoma, which is an incredibly aggressive cancer. But you know that never stopped him from like being out in the in the workshop. I think he broke the record for like most surgeries on a single person in our state in in Australia. <laughs> you know, which is not the the kind of record you want to break. But you know, I just I remember. So he was moving a like a knee mill, like a milling machine, into his workshop, and it it tipped and fell on him. And it, like, crushed two of the fingers on his left hand and, like, broke one of his ribs. And he managed to, like, push it off himself and then finished moving it and drove himself to hospital afterwards. You know, he's that kind Jesus. of guy. Jesus. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, he died um, right at that period when I was, like, in this startup company, you know, working my ass off. And so 
you know, the combination of like stress, it starts making your guts shitty. You know, I was, right. I was just not feeling great. And then, you know, my grandfather, who I was like super close to, even though he was back in Australia, I'd call him at least once a week and we'd, you know, chat for an hour or whatever. So he just died. And I was like, you know, what if I've got cancer? Is that why I'm feeling so shitty all the time? And so, you know, I'm, as you can probably guess, I have a little bit of like an OCD tinge, right? And I never realized growing up that one of the, um, kind of aspects of OCD that people don't talk about. It's not necessarily unlocking and locking doors a million times, but it might be like um, unwanted repetitive thoughts, you know, stuff that you just get locked into, you can't let go of. Huh. And one of those for that at that point in time for me was like, I'm clearly dying of something. You know, I don't know what it is. Something's making me sick. And it was stress, right? Like looking back in that period of time, it was this stress was fucking awful. But that just kind of became like an all-consuming thing until I could like barely function, you know? wow. um, and that you know put me out of out of work for a couple of months there because I just wasn't able to like deal. And yeah, the the kind of one of the saving graces during that period of time was getting into a shared workshop and starting to make stuff. I think it was like you know part of my therapy for that time, working through this thing that my grandfather and I really had in common, which was making stuff. Wow. You know, I think that people are too quick to say OCD. They have OCD. Mm -hmm. When you when I hear what you're saying and the you know these real symptoms of repetitive thought, I had no idea about the. You know, you hear people say they're straightening out their, you know, combing their rugs and shit, and it's like they're you know, turning <laughs> off the gas ten times and stuff like that. And you yeah. you hear stuff like that, but then you don't really. And then people, you know, people say, "Oh, I'm anal retentive," or "I'm I have OCD," and they don't really understand that it is truly a debilitating mental illness to a certain degree. Oh, yeah, absolutely can be. And, like, I didn't even realize myself that that was a symptom of OCD until I talked to my sister, and she'd been diagnosed with it. And she was like, yeah, you know, I have, you know, a lot of, uh, like, repetitive negative thoughts, you know, like stuff that you rationally you know isn't real, you know, but you can't get it out of your head. Right. And And then that was when I realized, I was like, oh, shit, I have that same symptom. I'd never thought about it that way, but, like, I would just get locked into stuff. Um, and that was part of what, when I scaled my business up, I, you know, I went to a much bigger workshop and stuff and that was part of what made that situation so stressful for me was that I could never, ever stop thinking about the fact that my overheads were like nine and a half grand a month. You know, I've got to come up with this money. Am I, you know, am oh. I going to be like out in the street? Cause I can't cover my rent, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting process having to like, like work through recognizing that and you know people don't talk about that shit enough you know like people don't talk about the mental health stuff enough and the fact that i hadn't talked to my sister about it is you know kind of what stopped me from realizing what was going on for such a long time i i honestly believe especially after pandemic mm -hmm. i believe that people really that you know what they do people youtube their own mental health you know, right. you, you know, like, and they, they come up with these fakakta ideas of what you're supposed to do. And it is true. I think that, I think that being self-reflective, but also I used to see a shrink all the time when my, my father died of melanoma too. We, you know, oh, so wow. when you say, I thought I have cancer, my sister had cancer. My dad's side of the family had cancer. My mom's side of the family had cancer. I'm just yeah, like, geez. I make jokes like, I make jokes like, 
I'm just going to slow down, sir. I'm taking care of myself because I just don't <laughs> want to like circle the drain quickly. Like I'm going to go get a colonoscopy in a couple of weeks. I'm going to go see my card, my cardiologist in a couple of weeks. Good. I just got my blood test done. And it's because I'm just like, let's rule out the, cause in my mind, I'm just like, Oh, they can't. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm cancer. Yeah. Already, I'm already, you know, I, under, I'm not, I don't think that I have, I, I know that I, I'm not OCD, but mental health is such a huge issue. And, and I, and it's, it is true that I think that there's this strange, there's a strange idea about people who how they see health in general. A lot of yeah. times people see physical and mental health like you're taking your car to the the mechanic and then they're just to fix the problem. You know, right. as opposed to like, you know, preparing yourself to know that look, your doctor's going to say you eat too much you bread meat, you drink too much beer, you smoke too many cigarettes. So why don't you just prepare yourself for the fact that he's going to say that and just cut it out so you can get a good bill of health? Yeah, 100%. And and like, yeah, you know, like mental health in particular, it's not like taking your car to the mechanic and they just yeah. hand it back to you with everything fixed. Like, you got to work at it. You know? um, it's so hard. And you know what, dude? Like, you know, we're talking about this as like small business owners like there's, there's very few things that you could do that are worse for your mental health than owning a small business like let's be honest this shit's hard you know and a lot of the time there's particularly with um you know the guys that are working solo out of their garage you know like there's there's no one to like riff with you know there's no one to talk to about <laughs> when things are shitty um, you know what there's there's a double that's a double edged sword because mm. I grew up being by I grew up with the last kid I was by myself all the time out of college I had my shop and I I would see my my girlfriend who's now my wife I'd see her in the morning and I'd see her when I got home I love being alone and mm. but there are days if I'm not completely organized per the day per the week. I can slip into a blue, you know, call, you know, you say I'm blue today or you're just like, or it's just not happening or yeah. something's, something is truly, truly preventing you from seeing the success that you want to do. And I always owe it to you. Can I cannot walk into the shop without having a very consistent plan on what I'm going to do today? Yeah, because yeah. you can slip into that. You can totally slip into, oh, let me go sit on the toilet and look at Instagram all day. Or, hey, you know what? I'm not going to make knives. I'm going to make a hammer today. Or I'm just going to forge. And then the forging tur turns like shit. And you've wasted the day. You can slip down a bad slide very, very easily. Well, it's interesting you say that, you know, because, like, I don't know. Like, I always think of you as a very disciplined person that's, like, you know, like, I hear you when you're talking with people on Knife Talk. You're like, you just got to fucking do it. You know, like, you've got something to do. Just do it. Um, but it's good to know that like, even someone like yourself that is very disciplined, you know, has the temptation to fall into those cycles. Cause yeah, I, I totally do that too. You know, like you get to the shop and like things aren't lined up as you want them to be. And you're like, ah, oh, I'll just do this other thing. And then, you know, nothing gets done. Discipline for me, you know, I talk, I say these things because here's the, here's the real thing with people who come up with these ideas to become business people, there's, there's this strange there's this strange like Peter Pan thing going on with a lot of people that give you the suggestion. If it's fun, that's what you should, you should make sure that it's fun and then do it if it's fun. If it's mm. not fun, don't do it. The problem is, is like, that sounds awesome. But if you're trying to, be, if you're just want to have fun, but if you're just trying, if you're trying to make a business, you have to be serious because otherwise if you, if you don't take yourself seriously, who's going to take yourself seriously? 100%. I need I need the discipline in order for me to like 
say I, you know, to be honest with myself, and I'm not, and I'm not saying I'm great all the time. I mean, there are times where, you know, there there are moments where, you know, I'm slipping out of what I know I need to be do, what I know I need to be do, but I set these guidelines up. It came from, I think, it came from a lot of things. One thing is my father was he he was very disciplined with me to the point where he would say, if you don't shape up, ship out. That was a big thing, like discipline with his. You know, I want when I tell you something, I want you to respond. I want you, I want the first time. I want you to do it the first time. I, now I say it to my dogs. You know, I want to say, I want you, you know, if I say something to the dog, I say, I asked you the first time. I talked to my dogs like my dad used to talk to me. And, and, but the, but, and then really when I got to college, I was doing these sculpture, I was a, a sculptor. I would give myself these cigarette breaks based hmm. on, based on the, the, you know, a goal reached. Like I couldn't reach a goal if I didn't have, you know, I couldn't have a cigarette unless I reached a goal. When I went fishing with my friends, you couldn't smoke a cigarette or eat a sandwich until you caught a fish. Right. So there were these goals in in line that I've always, you know, that you could savor the kind of the goal. And for me, have, being able to tell my wife, I'm not just like fucking around in a metal shop, you know, making like whatever squiggles or whatever the hell. Oh, look, you know, I'm actually become I'm actually very serious about it. And and I think that yeah. we have this real, and I, and it's hard. It's not easy. I mean, as you know, no. I mean. Nope. You're incredibly disciplined in regards to the minutia of what you're doing. It's not easy. It isn't easy. Well, it's it's kind of interesting, actually. Like, I actually have to be disciplined about not being obsessed about the minutia sometimes. Um, I think that's actually my bigger issue is that I'll, I'll focus on the, the small details um, to the exclusion of everything else to the point where I just don't get anything done. Right. You know? Um. And I think that's, you know, that's that same, that's another aspect of that same, like, repetitive focus on, on a single thing. I'll get obsessed about something, and then it has to be perfect. And, you know, in the past, I have let that just about drive me out of business. You know, like, I've had to really work on, on taming that. You know, like, n- nothing can be 100%. Like, I've never made a perfect knife. I don't, I don't know if you feel like you've ever made a, a perfect knife. You know, I... I I have to be okay with that. I have to make my peace with like every, you know, that has to be obviously be like a, a standard of quality that I can't go below, but like nothing's ever going to be perfect, you know? So I just, I have to remind myself of that sometimes, that reality. This is fascinating to me. You know, one other thing I thought about because you and I have, our approaches are completely different. Mm-hmm. I really feel like I come at it from more like the lines of when I was growing up, my dad was a painter, but the way he painted, it was very gestural. It was allowing these spontaneous moments to happen. My yeah. first blacksmith teacher, Uri Hoffi, his style, which is very controversial because he is allowing the hammer marks to be the hammer marks. And you could make the point that some of it is a little bit sloppy, but at the same time, he would say that this is the humanity, which dovetail perfectly into the way my father used to paint and how he would teach me about art, allowing a brushstroke to be a brushstroke, and it's not going to be the, you know, it has this degree of humanity. I, for me, I mean, I have your knife in front of me. It, right. it can't be more perfect. Like, it, I, it just can't. I mean, it feels incredible in my hand. It's better than I expected it to be, and I've been a fan of yours for quite a while. It was way better than I expected it to be. And I wonder when is good enough good enough for you? Because perfect is out the window. I mean, obviously, but perfect, I mean, but at the same yeah. time, like I have, I, when I, I have this in my hand, the Kydex, the fit, the color, the matte finish, the feel, the weight, the, the, there's no bruising of the G10. It's a perfect knife. 
So I wonder, to, I wonder <laughs> at what point do you say it's good enough? Well, it's interesting you say that, right? Because, you know, I said this to you just before we started the show and you told me to, to keep it for the show. Yeah. Um, that, that, that knife is actually one of my kind of less perfect examples in my mind. So, like, as I said, I, I made the blade and then heat treated it and then the handles wouldn't fit on anymore because the, the pinholes had moved. So I had to, like you know adjust some stuff by hand to get it to fit the the fit around the handle scales is you know if i was to be really pedantic it's not as perfect as i would would like it to be you know and and maybe one day i'll make that perfect knife i've made a couple that are like pretty close all right you be honest with me i i have this in front of me what's <clears> not perfect about it uh the fit between the handle scales and the tang at the butt of the knife the fuck out of here man Get the fuck out of here. Nobody well, this cares. Is the problem. This is, but that, I get how into my fu- head about that two, stuff, you know? Number two, how do you know that? Because, like, you've made a hundred of these, thousands of these. How do you know what, what your problem with the one I, you gave me was? Every knife is special, Jeff, but your knife is a little bit more special, you know? Get the fuck out of here. Once again, get the, <laughs> come on, man. Get the fuck out of here. Well, it's interesting, right? Because, I mean, I even said this to you. Like, I had a lot of stress about making that knife for you about, um, I always get a bit stressed about making knives for people that I really respect, especially if they're other craftspeople, because I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, I think, I think this is, this is good. But like, what if you get it and you're like, dude, this is a pile of shit. Why oh did you my. send me this? You, you know, this is the problem with knife makers. We use expressions. One of the things that I'd love to not ever say again is mm. shit knife. <laughs> I honestly I honestly think that there's been this idea that this is a shitty knife or that's a shitty knife. I think that this is more along the lines of for people who are artists or who are not artists. This is this is a manifestation of what you're doing and it's based on the skill mm-hmm. that you have at the time. Obviously, you can't go back in time if you didn't know something. So it's a it's it's this it's this it's this concept of it's a milestone in your growth as a human being. When people start talking this is a shit knife or that's a shit knife, what you're saying is is like it's it's not it's not a it's not an accurate description of, of what it is. This person maybe is new at this, maybe they don't know about this or maybe they don't, you know, they're not at the level that they understand this and it's just a part of who they are at the time. But, yeah, for sure. But for I mean, you to think that I would say that is bananas. No, I like I knew you weren't going to say that, right? But like I also I want you to to pick it up and have that that moment where you're like even though you have high expectations where you're still like, "Oh, wow. Okay." You know, that that's what I really wanted. And, I did. I showed it around. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very glad. But you know, like in my head, like I've listened to you on Knife Talk. I I know what you're about and I know one of your pet peeves is like people that don't uh finish the Corby bolts enough. And I deliberately don't do that. That's one of the things that I don't do. You know, I finish my handle scales to 120 grit so that they stay grippy when they're wet. I'm you know, just, I was curious what you were going to think of that. You know, I I'm looking at it now. You, as far as I'm concerned, you finish the Corby bolts. It's the same <laughs> finish as the handle. It's the same finish as the handle. Right. I was talking to one day. I was talking to Jonathan Porter, and he says his pet peeve. And P.S. I don't use the word pet peeve. You know, P.S. For everyone to know, pet peeve is for like penthouse play, penthouse models and Playboy models. What's your pet peeve? It's like you know, long walks in the ocean, all that. Pet peeves are not for men. 
pet peeves are for like <laughs> when you say a pet peeve, that's for like that's like for penthouse models. This isn't for, for men. So my pet peeve, I'm gonna say my pet peeve. I he I was talking to Porter and Porter says his biggest beef is when there's like a sixty grit scratch on a Corby bowl. Mm, that's yeah. it. And I might have said that once or twice, but honestly, I talk a big I gotta say something on that fucking pot, knife talk because it's like I mean I gotta I can't be like I can't say the same thing everybody else has to say. And I have to make it a little interesting. Yeah, the other yeah, thing I is is like I honestly I mean I'm t- I'm looking at this now. I don't see what you're talking about. I don't really don't see what you're talking about Good. in terms of like these are fin- I mean this is this is the design. The one thing I'll say is I thought this was a lot small. I, I wonder if that you. I wonder with the Resolute Mark Three, if it used to be an, an integration of it was a bigger knife. There were uh, so the previous version. There was the Resolute Four, not the Mark Four, the Four, and the Resolute okay. Five, and they were a four-inch blade and a five-inch blade. Okay. And so the five-inch blade one was bigger than that, and then the one that you have, the Resolute Mark Three, is kind of like the Goldilocks, right in the middle of those two. It's, That's a it's four and so a quarter nice. inch blade. Well, I'm glad you like it, man. Yeah, I mean, I just found for me the five inch. So, part of my philosophy with knife making is that I have to eat my own dog food, right? Um, I'm not okay. going to make a knife that I don't personally like, that doesn't fit my hand, that doesn't work for me. Because if I do that, it means I won't use the knife. Right. And if I'm not using the knife, then. I'm not going to find its flaws. I'm not going to find where it could be improved. I'm not going to, you know. So my philosophy with knives is that I'm making the knife for me. And if other people resonate with that and they want one, then that's fantastic. But I'm never going to make a knife that I'm not going to use. Does that make sense? I love that because this is the problem with culinary people, culinary Hmm. knife guys. I make a joke, but it's not really a joke. People who make culinary knives, most of them don't know, don't love to cook. Right. And the problem is, is if you don't love to cook, you don't know what you need. Yeah, 100%. And, and I know that you're working on a new culinary knife. I watched your video of, uh, of you making the prototype for the new culinary knife. We're going to talk about that in a second. But there is something to be said about making something for yourself. My, my, my culinary knives changed dramatically. There's every, you know, over the years, it was small evolutions of what I like to use and what I like to use. And when I cook, you know, I cook, you know, I don't cook like, I'm not like one of these crazy people. I'm doing, you know, you know, micro gastronomy. I, I cook, like <laughs> the norm, you know, but I cook every night and I know what's right. comfortable and I know what bothers me and I know how I hold the knife and I know, and it does, it does make a giant difference when you make it for yourself because of what you like. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the right thing for everyone. You know, like it's a very rare thing that I have a knife come back, but like well, a couple of months ago, a guy in Canada bought a knife and he was like, Oh, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit my hand. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like he sent me a photo of his hand. I was like, Oh dude, okay. You've got huge hands. <laughs> you know? And I was like, that's fine. You know, like here's a refund, like mail the knife back. Um, I'm not going to like make another knife that's bigger just because there's like, you know, 3% of people that have giant hands that the current knife doesn't fit because I'm never going to use that knife. May I say that that's a stupid, that guy is a dumb guy. <laughs> I don't think so, man. Like I think that... I do think so. That's oh. crazy. You're not talking about a $5,000 knife. You know, you're, 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 if, if when I, I've bought, especially during pandemic, I bought a pile of knives from a lot of knife makers. Cause I felt like number one, I thought it was good to be part of the community, but also most of everybody I bought a knife from was from a friend of mine. Right. All of them were great. 
And and I, but but to, to buy a knife from someone for three hundred dollars and say it doesn't fit my hand, I want my money back. I think that's unreasonable. Well, he didn't come to me and say he wanted his money back. It's just for me, if he's not happy with the knife, then like a. I don't want him to keep the knife and not use it. And B, uh, you know, if he's not going to have the knife, I don't want to have his money. So, like, uh, yeah, it just that that's kind of how I approach that situation. Like, I don't I don't want an unhappy customer. Um, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. If you don't like the knife, send it back. No questions yeah. asked. I'm talking, but not I'm not talking business to business. I'm talking person to person as <laughs> right. a person. As a person, this has nothing to do with business. We're, this, Aaron, this is just you and me. We're not talking about business right now. We're talking about <laughs> mindsets of people. That guy was unreasonable as a human being. I guess. Maybe. I mean, like, if I if I spent a bunch of money on a knife and I was really excited to get it and then it just didn't feel good in my hand, whether that's the knife maker's fault or my fault for having, like, big hands, then, like, you know, I, I would talk to them and see what the solution was. Like, I don't want to hang on to something that I don't like. But yeah. he had the opportunity to read your website, and he would see this that the most <laughs> knives are fucking five inch handles. Like right. that's not a, that's like my my handles are the same size handles as yours, five inches. That's a standard st- size handle for a knife, and the guy's got you know bare mitts. I mean, bare then mitts, he should have yep. got something else. Yeah, I guess so, man. I guess so. Well, I mean, you know, like, but I, I'll admit too that like the shape of my handle doesn't necessarily lend itself to being held in a hand that's bigger than the handle. You know, if the back of the handle was more rounded, like really melted over, you know, then someone with really big hands, it, it may not be, uh, it may not bother them. I know? disagree. If you look at a paring knife, paring knives usually are inside your palm. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, whatever. Back to, back to you and your, <laughs> your knife making. I, I, back to our, our, our style and stuff like that. I love, like I said before, I love the fact that you are so dedicated to the process. Because when I listen to your podcast, you you have the XYZ podcast. Used to be with uh, with uh, Craig Lockwood. Now it's with your with your friend Nick, who's a guitar maker. Mm-hmm. It's a different. The the podcast is so interesting because before, when it was just you and, and Craig, and Craig had said to me, he's like, "Look, I just need to know how to do this, and I'm just going to ask a million questions." It was right. very much along the lines of I felt like because I know nothing about CNC in my personally and my mind the back of my mind it says to me you can, you have the you cannot learn one more thing right now until you get this 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 and done you just can't you're not allowed so to me being able to listen i was like i'm on craig's side i'm just like i'm fascinated by what you're saying now that you have nick on who is a guitar maker and you guys are friends the dynamic is so much different because you guys are talking about tool paths and you're talking about really really intricate parts of the cnc machine and i feel like you guys are connecting Based on the fact that you're making knives, he's making guitars. You're connecting on this incredible uh, uh, the 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 level of you know the experience of using CNC, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean it's really cool too, right? Because like Nick and I have a lot of history. Um, we go back like you know to that shared workshop that I was talking about, right? Like you know, he and I got drunk a lot in that shared workshop. Um, and yeah, like they they have a kind of a similar philosophy to me in that they they really only have like one or two models of guitars and then they do a lot of variations on that. So again, they're really focused on the process on trying to make, you know, their guitars as good as they possibly can um, without like making a whole new guitar every, every year or whatever. Um, And yeah, it's, it's been really great, man. Like it's, it's funny how things just kind of work out. You know, I, at at the start I was, you know, pretty bummed out obviously that uh, 
Craig wasn't able to stay with the, the show. And I was like, oh, what, what's going to happen? And then I just had this idea to ask Nick. And I was kind of surprised he said yes, to be honest. Like, I didn't think he would have time. Like, he's he's got a young family and, uh, you know, a friggin' business that he's working in day in and day out. And it's been great. It's been... It's also just really nice having someone that you talk to week to week to have that, you know, sometimes you have a shit week <laughs> and you have yeah. to just tell someone about it. You, know? you had, you had a recent episode, you, you talked about your shitty week. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, one of the things about Nick is, is I was at first I thought it'll be interesting to see what happens. Nick, you and Nick have great chemistry and he's got a good radio voice and there's not a lot of ums and ahs and he's very, very good on the mic. So just to let you know, like I was just, I was surprised at how natural he was at it and you both are very engaged with each other and it seems as though you're having a good time and if you guys are having a good time, the listeners are having a good time. Yeah, one, of the thing, one of the things that interests me about you in general is, is your ability to want to help. And, mm. you know, be, be, when you started to making, when you started making your videos and now with the podcast, you have this real sense of wanting to give back to a community, but I'm not sure it's the knife making community because I feel like I've, one of the things that I love about what you're doing is I almost feel like you're more of into the metal. I see this as, I see my shop as a metal shop. I don't see it as a knife shop. Right. I see it as like, just like when we used to make railings, just who were doing jobs. I see it as a metal shop. I don't focus it on a knife shop. Whereas I think that you, as opposed to thinking you have a knife shop, it's more like a machine shop because you're doing so much engineering and so much CNC work and computer work, it has a less of a, uh, and your, your, the, the way you make knives, it seems more like a manufacturing studio or facility than it does like yeah. a knife shop. Yeah, totally. And like, you're right. Like I have a real drive to try and to give back. And I think that a lot of that is because, you know, like I learned like most of the stuff I know from like, the internet and YouTube and people on forums and stuff. And like, I want to help other people have that experience. You know, I, I, I don't think that I get to take that and walk away and just be like that. That's my knowledge now, you know? Um, and also I think that comes from working in software and doing a lot of open source stuff where like you literally right. are just giving away your work as you do it. Right. Um, and I've had a lot of good experiences in, in that process, you know, people that are like, oh, you could do it like this. You could, you know, there's an improvement here. They, they submit an improvement or, you know, you find out that you helped somebody else's business become a thing, you know? Um, and yeah, in terms of like the, the, the people that I'm speaking to, I think that that's kind of just grown naturally with my business. Um, I think in some ways it might actually be a negative thing, right? Because when I was like just talking to knife makers, it's much easier to find an audience. Like I know my knife, my audience are knife makers, but like who the hell is my audience when I'm like, you know, so one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is like a a sandblasting robot. Like who who the hell is my audience now when I'm like making robots, you know, in the shop? Like I, I have no idea. So I hope that as I keep expanding that and, and doing new projects on my YouTube channel, that the audience will expand naturally i hope you know i would think see but the thing is i would i would see that i would think that because one of the things i love about your youtube page is it is totally a growth of your not only is you see them you see how painful painstaking it took to get you where you are in those first videos like i said you're using a hacksaw to cut this piece of steel like the whole you had to speed up the hacksaw and i'm watching this i'm like i've used a hacksaw before 
this is arduous. Yes. You, yeah, it's not easy. It was, you were cutting relief. You know, and I was just like, oh, man, the relief cuts. That's like three times as much sawing because he's got to do all the relief cuts too. <laughs> and all I could think, and then you don't have a grinder. You got like, a, you got one of those Harbor Freight grinders with the disc on it and with the, and yeah, all I set I could, the thing on file once accidentally. I'm not surprised. And yeah. then you built this filing jig that I made one of those two, and I know that other people have made it. You started out with the humblest of equipment, and you started to make these beautiful knives. And the fact that every video you see, all oh, next next video you got a Beaumont. I got a Beaumont because I thought I thought oh, Aaron Goff's got a Beaumont. Let's let's look in a Beaumont. That was my first grinder. It was a Beaumont. I thought hey, yeah, he's yeah. making good knives. I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna get a Beaumont too. And then you had the even heat, and I was just like, I'm gonna get a 120 even heat too. And <laughs> and it was like it was I to watch your growth as going from you know a propane tank and you know you're heat treating out of like a brick with a hole in it with a with a map gas you know right. you know plumber's torch flying through it to and and a hacksaw to having these machines to watch that growth and also watch this degree of suffering like just exponentially <laughs> like there's the suffering grows exponentially with the growth of your, uh, with the yeah. growth of your business yeah you're not wrong yeah there, there's been yeah, that's been some rough times in it. I mean, it's. Sure. I mean, I feel you're suffering in the beginning. I mean, you're watching me with the hacksaw. You're like, oh my god, this motherfucker is suffering. And then, and then you, you know, you're going through. You're going through. And I know you've done these, these posts about like I've thrown so many. You, you know, you talked on knife talk when you were with us. You've thrown out a ton of knives. Oh yeah, yeah. And just before we started this episode, I had to delay a few minutes because I was doing heat treat. And I said to you, like, I'm not too worried about these the heat treat on these two bits of steel being perfect because they're um, steel that I'm going to use for prototypes of my kitchen knife, and there's like uh, a probably at least a seventy percent chance that they're going to be scrap in a week. Oh my! You, you, do do you believe you're like a glutton for punishment, or do you feel <laughs> like you? Because I, I mean, you you think about you, people getting knocked down and then coming back up, and I know on uh, X Y Z you've talked to Nick about like you have no idea how much debt I incurred before I went back to be getting into you know you went back into uh, computers just to kind of mm-hmm. like cut back you had a shop and then you you had to cut it loose because the 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 prices were too high and your overhead was too high and you had to make these really tough decisions do you do you do you enjoy the struggle because i feel like you're no you're very not at all, actually you don't because that no. might be a jujitsu thing like i remember i used to watch the gracie brothers uh here on mm. and and uh, henner gracie and here on would say to here on would say in his videos the most important thing is you have to learn how to you have to learn how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations yeah and i feel like that i i feel like that's what you're doing i feel like you're learning how to get yourself in these very very tough situations and thrive yeah, I mean, part of it is that I really wish I could, like, pick and choose which tough situations I have more. Right. Like, I really dislike tough situations that are in the business, if that makes sense. Like, you yeah. know, finances, cash flow, all that shit. I just, I don't care. I don't I don't want to deal with any of that stuff, you know? The tough situations I want to have are, like, you're developing some new process, you know, like a new finish or a, a new, um, you know, so, like, with the kitchen knife, I'm developing a new model. And I have to, like, work out how to hang on to the steel while I'm machining it. Like, it's such a basic thing. But, like, you know, probably a third of the blade is, like, thinner than 20 or 30 thou. You know, I'm sorry, I don't, you don't speak thou. Uh, I don't do that. A 30, a 30 second, like a 64th, like, okay, really okay, okay. thin bits of steel. And they're, like, fully hard, 
you know, it's it's sixty two and a half Rockwell A two tool steel that I'm trying to like cut on a, a CNC mill. Um, that's the kind of stuff that really like I'll, I'll that'll make me want to like get up early in the morning and come to the shop to like get that process working, you know. So I wish that I could pick and choose. I, you know, part of me wishes I was like the Playboy millionaire. You know, like I've just got a billion dollars in the bank and I'm just like making knives because it's because it's fun. You know. Yeah. Um. So just yeah. to let you just to let you know, yeah. I know you guys interviewed uh, Bree Pettis from Bantam mm-hmm. Tools, and it wasn't it, it the the audio was a problem. He, he he's got uh, Bantam Tools is right down the street from me, and I know. He's he's like a very successful guy. I know it ain't yes. easy over there at Band of Tools. I know it ain't like he got the money, and I know it ain't easy over there on Band of Tools. No, a hundred percent. And but I think it's yeah, like I guess I enjoy the the struggle of the the making of things, but not so much of the like existential struggle. You know, like is my business going to be here a year from now? I, I don't I don't like that kind of struggle. Um, but in terms of like making stuff, yeah, I I love it, man. Like I'm trying to. One of the problems I have in the past is I was so caught up in like just keeping up with the grind of making stuff for customers and, you know, ensuring my own survival that I wasn't able to like get into the stuff that I really, the challenges that I really want to do, you know? So like the, the fancy like diamond coating, that black coating on my knives, um, you know, I have to pay another company to do that for me right now. Right. And I've had tons of problems with that. Like, you know, other people just don't understand the the standards that i'm trying to hold to so you know if there's like a little mark in the middle of the bevel you know it's just a little spot like that's i can't send that out to a customer but for them they're like what are you talking about it's black you know it's it's coded what what do you want so like i'd really love to bring that process in-house but like if you want to buy a machine to do that coding off the off the rack you know it's like a half a million dollars um so i'm like slowly working on building like a low-cost machine to do that myself in the shop that's the kind of challenge that like will keep me up at night you know i love that kind of stuff um i would think that if you have the tendencies of ocd (laughs) giving your stuff to somebody else to do must be torture it is yeah and there's been times when like uh, you know so just after i'd moved to the big the big shop, you know, with the, the big expenses. And I was doing this, you know, really scary, like, uh, scaling up process. And I sent them like 60 blades to, to coat. And I, they were a hundred percent scrap. All like of them. every single one of them came back with problems. And luckily I don't have to like throw the blades away, but that still means that they have to be like re processed. Like I have to like blast the coating back off, which is like harder than the steel itself. So you're spending all this time in the sandblasting cabinet trying to get like a perfect matte finish on the blades again. And then sending them out, that's the painful part, is sending them out again and knowing that like probably fifty percent of them are gonna come back this time with a problem, you know. Um and yeah, as you said, like that drives me crazy because I know that they're changing something. You know, I know that something has changed to make this problem happen when it hasn't happened in the past, but I can't control the process on their end. So I have to just live in the filth, you know, like I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Um, so yeah, bringing it in house, like I, I want to bring everything in house as much as I can, um, you know, probably to a crazy degree. But that's the kind of stuff that I really love is like I get to really stretch my legs learning new stuff, um, applying a, like a much broader part of my skill set to this problem. So, yeah, we'll, 
you know, if, if anything keeps me in the love of knife making, it, I think it's that kind of stuff. I, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm a total slob. I, you know, when I, when I was training the kids to work with me at the shop, I was teaching them hand sanding. Mm-hmm. And I had a, I, and they would do these, these satin finishes in the beginning that were, they were, they just didn't look like my satin finish. And I would send them back because I had to create these ideas. I had to create these systems in which they could make a hand sanded knife look like my hand sanded knife in terms of no J hooks and none of this, none of that. I would think that, and I, and I had experience with um, hybrid wood people who I was loving the hybrid wood stuff. And then I would ask to get stuff remade I was asking uh, for like, hey, can you match this? And I would be getting s- stuff totally different from what I asked for. And right. it got to the point where I had to make this. I had to, I had to say, I'm not. I'm just not going to work with this guy anymore. Or I'm just not going to do that. And it got to the point where I was just like, I'm just not buying this shit anymore because I mm-hmm. I can't count on other people. But for you, what you're doing, what it's such a massive amount of a specific thing. I would imagine that you don't have a lot of options in regards to uh, other purveyors of that to do that process. No, and you know what? Like, I, I I'm always like, you know, sending out feelers, trying to find new suppliers, new vendors for the, the coating or whatever. You know, so I had this experience a little while ago where I sent some blades out to a new DLC coating vendor, and um, I engraved on the blades. So they also do um, nickel plating electrolytic nickel plating i was like oh that could be really interesting as like an anti-corrosion layer let's let's try that out so i engraved on i sent them six blades and i engraved on two like dlc only and then on two of them i engraved nickel only and then two of them i wrote nickel and dlc and do you think that they got that right no no they didn't like that and that boggles my fucking mind like the the instructions are literally literally written on the thing and they didn't get that right. So I, I couldn't test them because I didn't know which ones were just DLC and which ones were like nickel and DLC. And then they said, oh, the DLC looks great. You know, it looks fantastic. And I get them back. And one of the issues with DLC is if the adhesion between the coating and the blade isn't perfect. So you're, you're applying it like molecule by or atom by atom, basically in a vacuum chamber. And if the adhesion isn't perfect, then it, like, it just doesn't even stick. It's like a separate layer. And something had happened on the spine of the, the knives and the coating had just totally popped off. Like there was no coating at all on the spine of the knives. And they sent them back to me. They were like, they're perfect. You know, and I looked at the back and I'm like, there's no fucking coating here. What, what are you talking about? They're perfect, you know? So yeah, it is very, very frustrating at times. I said on Knife Talk, I would imagine, when, I, when you were on, I said, I would imagine getting a phone call from you is not, probably their their highlight of the day when when you call there might be there might be issues well i'm you know like i I don't like being in conflict with people i find that you know i i want to work with them to solve the problem the part that i find frustrating is when you know i'll get different answers you know the owner of the company will tell me one thing and then the guy that ran the parts will tell me another yeah i'm like why are you telling me this to like just I gave you a checklist. Can you just follow the checklist, please? <laughs> you know, like, don't check it off if it didn't actually happen. Um, you know, and it's interesting. Like, the, the, probably the best thing that's happened is that, you know, like, I have established a relationship with the one guy that runs my parts at this vendor. And so now, 90% of the time, when he tells me it's good, I can trust him. You know? And he knows, like, I, I can text him and say, like, with this batch, make sure you do this. And he's like, yep, yeah, no problems, man. 
And and you know what? Like having that personal relationship makes things a lot smoother. Can I break the news to you that you're <laughs> that he's actually your handler? Maybe he's he's handling you, Aaron. You Perhaps. have to understand the company is like Hey, he gets along well with Aaron. Let him deal. With it. Let him handle Aaron. He's your handler. You're well, too but this difficult. This is the guy that like runs the parts. Like, I'm telling he, you, he's he doesn't your handler. speak English. He's, a, he's like a Russian dude. Um, you know, maybe he's my handler, but he's your you handler. Know, you're, he's you're t- you're the he's white gloving you for the company. It's hey, great. Man, as long as we keep getting results, whatever know? it takes. Listen, if you need hey, to get yeah. handled, you need to get handled. That's this is one one of the things is I know I know someone who is notorious for when. Uh, they go to a restaurant, they're mm. going to send the food back a couple of times. I'm not saying, Oof. I'm not making the connection with you. I'm just saying that this is the fact. And my friend at the restaurant who knows when they're coming, when they see this person on the on the reservation list, they go to the kitchen and say, "When I'll tell you when their food is coming. I'll tell you when their order is in. And when their order is in, be prepared because it might come back a couple times. And they handle, they handle this person. Um, you got a Russian handler in that organization, and you should be, <laughs> you should be thrilled. Be honest with you that you're actually they're giving a damn because they don't want to hear about it otherwise. Yeah, but it, it kind of boggles my mind though that like there are companies like that where like you really have to kick up a fuss for things to get done right. That's called that, rattling that, the cage. Yeah, I that. That frustrates me, you know, and so like when I get vendors that or like suppliers or whatever, you know, so you, you probably heard me um, shilling for these guys so much on my own podcast, but there's this company called Maritool that make all of the tool sure. holders and cutting tools for me. They just make shit right. I don't have to like follow up with them three times to get the order right or whatever. Like just whenever I get stuff from them, it's right, you know, and I love that. I would go out of my way to deal with people like that and give them my money. It, I find it incredibly frustrating that there are people that you know don't take pride in their work, where you just get whatever they choose to give you that day. You know, it's interesting because I was at two different metal shops with two totally different ethics. Mm. When I was at the Center for Metal Arts, it was also fine architectural metalsmiths, and we were doing railings and stuff like that. There was a high level of of uh, construction when we were making railings. Like there were times where I had to redo welds, you know, in a picket. Even it was underneath because the lead man didn't like the way it looked, and right. it was very much along the lines of they had a he uh, John Ledford, who was the lead man there. Good one, of, probably easily one of my most important mentors in terms of metalworking. He had a very high standard for what we were go- what we were sending out. When I went to the second shop, it was a what I referred to as a, a pump pump shop because we were moving railings out. We were doing so much stuff for uh, um, construction, facades of buildings, and we were doing uh, all sorts of like fast paced stuff. There were times where it was stuff was sent out where you're just like, is this? Did I? Did we give it a hundred percent? No. Is it based on the time? Yes. Did we have it? You know, it was stuff was uh, speed and 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 uh, deadlines were were preventing us from being able to do a specific style that we wanted to do. And you know, it, some things went out. We ha- we crossed our fingers that we wouldn't get a call. Right. And it didn't have anything to do with like we didn't care. It was we were our boss was just like that thing needs to go out in the next three hours. We've had mm-hmm. that before, and it's just like. They're they're on their way to pick up that railing. You got to finish it now, and it was yeah, like totally. And I mean, that stuff comes from the top down, you know. Yeah. Like if if the owner of the company is like, you know, 
good enough is good enough, then yeah, of course. But like, um, yeah, and you know, like I, I like people that aren't, aren't like that. Well, I, you know what, I like I said, I think we're we come from totally different pathways because growing up, my father used to at some point he used to say enough is enough, and or or it's good, it's fine, it's good enough, mm-hmm. and I do have that sense of like. I feel with my work in general, it's even, I think if you look at the way I paint, you could see that it isn't, there's more humanity in it. There's more, uh, it's more, the way I paint is more like a uh, printmaker prints. It's layers upon layers. And there is this sense of humanity to it. I, I could never get into, you know, like very realistic paintings. It just doesn't feel like it's, in me and i feel like when i get to my my knives are definitely without question the tightest stuff i do and and the reason why is and i give a credit to you but at the same time i do what you don't do is i try to simplify things and if it can't make it happen i look at something else you know like if if i was in the situation you were in and i was sending all these knives out to be dlc coded they're coming back and i didn't like them i'd stop doing the dlc coding and, and that would be me. That would be me being like, it's enough already. I cannot handle, I can't yeah. handle this. I can't handle this stress. Yeah. And honestly, that's, that might be the same thing to do, you know, like, <laughs> um, and, and honestly, in, in a lot of ways, I kind of envy the style that you have where, you know, like that, it's, I forget what the Japanese term for it is. It's the perfection in the oh, imperfection. Wabi sabi. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really say that. I just heard about it. I've right. said it once before and be like, all right. Yeah, it's a, little, like, it's a little highfalutin. I'm not, know, hanging like, my hat, I'm not hanging my hat on expressions. But, you know, being able to have that humanistic style, as you said, like, um, I, I don't know, like, my work as it stands, if I tried to add elements of that, I think it would feel really out of place. Um, and in some ways, I kind of envy the ability to do that because I think it would be more relaxing, you know? Um, but... You know that's that's fine. I'm... It's it's interesting that you say that too because actually I had a last week. I, I you know I've been the folding knife is such an amazing thing. You know I'm sure that you think about folding knives all the time. I know that mm-hmm. you do. The Resolute is like the number one knife that you've been spending your years on, which is like so. I love the fact that you have spent years on this one design and you don't like, you don't fuck around with it. You're not like putting gut hooks on it. You're not, you're not futzing around, putting the harpoon clips on it. You're just like, this is it. But what I had the ability to, I started doing, uh, I want to do more forge stuff and less stock removal stuff and being able to forge allows it's fun. It's fun. It, number one, it's 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 so much fun. But then all of a sudden, you're kind of dealing with mass in a different way, and you're thinking about it. It's 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 not reductive and it's not additive, but it's like just a manipulation of the mass. So it's more like you know clay to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And I had this yeah, last week. I had this real cathartic moment. I've been trying to figure out. I have I beat the hell out of blacksmiths because I always make the joke, and I'm partially kidding. I make the joke that blacksmiths all they do is they make bottle openers. Nobody <laughs> modern day now, no one's making anything that people actually need. You're making handles. You're making bottle openers. You're making hooks. I, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Why don't Not you make some blacksmiths to make nails these days? Why don't right? we you make something? Why don't you know this is 2021? Why don't we make something we we you know besides a bottle opener? And Chris Cash, my friend Chris Cash, beat me up. He says, "Oh, you wonder why you always say that?" And I'm fooling around half the half the way. And I thought to myself, I want to make something that I want to make a box cutter, oh, a razor blade holder, like a razor blade knife. 
You know, a yeah, knife that holds that. the razor blades. I saw that on your Instagram. It looks awesome. I had the this kind of cathartic moment. It was like a bolt of lightning. I figured out how I would do it. I finished all my glue up. I turned the forge on, and then I was able to kind of like go. And it wore, it moved fast, and it was like this real cathartic moment of it was eureka to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. And it was really like this moment. I I feel like. I'm not 100% sure you have the ability, based on your shop and the way you think work, do you have the ability to do stuff like that where you can off-road a project and just kind of, like, go with it? Or um, Yeah, a little bit. I, like, I actually had a, a moment like that a couple of months ago. I was just – I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You know, I was, like, really yeah. just grumpy in the morning. And I came into the shop, and I was like, I don't want to fucking work today. Like, I just, I just don't. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to design a knife. And I sat down and I designed a folding knife. Um, and it's it's going to happen. You know, like, it, it's definitely less of a, um, particularly with folding knives, because it's so complicated, I'm going to be machining so many parts of it. It's right. kind of hard to just, like, whack out a prototype by hand. Right. You know? um, so there's definitely less of a, like, kind of follow through. You know, like, I can't have that eureka moment and then necessarily get to a finished product quickly. But I do still have them. But with the, with, with, see, friction folders are completely different because there's not, they're not, it's not like a, a slip joint. It's not like, there's not a mm-hmm. lot of, it is not a lot of mechanics. Like, that's the, the, the great part about a friction folder is, yeah, they're not a lot of, you don't have stops. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to heat treat the, you don't have to heat treat the lever. You don't have to, I mean, you can just kind of, you know, it's, it's much easier to kind of get into friction folders. I think that's why a lot of people get into them. Right. Yeah. Whereas I'm not making my own life easy. Like I've, I've been wanting to make a folding knife for years and, you know, I'll, every couple of months I'll sit down and sketch a bunch of them and I've just never had one that I liked. And this one is finally like something that I actually like. Well, let's but, talk about it. Sure. Give us, give us a little bit. Give us a little bit about this folding knife. So it's it's totally different to the Resolute, and that's one of the things that I want to do with my models. Is, you know, I've had a lot of people say like, "Oh, do a folding Resolute." I'm like, no. You know, like when I'm carrying a knife in the city, it's not to like skin a deer. Right. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't need that that you know like drop point like belly on the knife. You know, I'm opening boxes and stuff with it, so right. I want like a sharp point and. One of the favorite knives that I ever carried for, like, you know, in the city was uh, a CRKT M16, which is like a kind of tactical Tanto, you know? And because you have that, uh, you know, a Tanto has, like, two points. It has the one that's kind of on the belly at the bottom where the the front edge meets up with the bottom edge, and then you have the one actually at the tip. But they're really nice to open boxes with because you can use that kind of uh, second point to open the box. Um, So it's a Tanto. It's a it's a button lock tanto, um, which you know that's about as far away from the resolute as you could possibly get. Yeah. But again, that's that's what I would carry. That's like the knife for me, you know. And it's um, obviously small. Yeah, it's quite and it's quite slim. Like it's it's more of like a gentleman's folder than like right. a, a tactical knife. You know, I, one of the things I really dislike about uh, folding knives is when you're carrying them, if they're too wide in the handles. Then every time you go to put your hand in your pocket to like get your keys out or something, you end up like, yeah. you know, busting your knuckles. Yeah, or like dragging the knife out with you when you're like yeah. pulling your keys out. You know, so it's very slim. It's only like three quarters of an inch wide in the handle, something like that. Um, and the other limitation that I put on myself is, and I'm not sure whether this is going to work out, but I really didn't want to do a lock that anybody else had done. 
course. I wanted to do. Of uh, course you didn't. Uh, of course you don't. From scratch. Of yeah. course you don't. What, so what's going to be the difference between this and what other people use? Um, so the it's it's a button lock. So you you know you press on the side of the, the handle to unlock it. But the way that that operates is unusual. It has um, a ball bearing that rides in the hole in the blade that actually stays captive with the blade. So the, the ball bearing kind of moves away from where the button is. But then when you open the knife, the the ball ring lines up with a hole on the bottom handle scale and the top handle scale. And the bottom handle scale has like a plug in it with a spring behind that gets pushed into the blade. And then that's what locks the blade. Um, it has like a, a conical interface. Um, but that pushes the ball bearing that was in the blade across and into the handle. So when it locks, the button actually pops up out of the handle. Oh my um, God. It sounds so complicated. Well, that's the cool thing though. It's kind of not all that complicated because if you make a one piece button lock, then you have to have a mechanism that goes through the blade and is retained on the other side. And it has to be to pretty tight tolerances. And, um, you know, it's just all the stuff that goes into it. Whereas with this, it's like one off-the-shelf part in the in the ball bearing. You know, I'm just going to be buying those. I'm not going to make them, obviously. And then a pretty simple plug and a simple little button. And they can all go in separately. And then the whole thing kind of meshes together, you know? Let's so, look into the future right now. <laughs> which which company are you going to be yelling at when you're making these knives? Who, who are you going to be calling up and saying, this isn't right? Probably because I don't have a CNC lathe in the shop. So if I don't make the like the button and the plug by hand on my manual lathe, then I'll probably be yelling at whoever I outsourced the making of those parts to. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. This, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to all the knives you make. This, let's talk about the kitchen knife. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that you took co- cooking classes. You went, to do, you went to culinary school to just to get an idea about how people cook. Yeah, and I mean, like I I know how to cook. I say that like, you know, I'm not Gordon Ramsay or anything, but I can cook. Um, but you know, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like, you know, out in space. You know, like right. I that other people handled my knives, and you know, that like actual chefs had used my knives. And going to cooking school was a great way to do that. You know, I made friends with some chefs, and they took my original prototype with them to work and stuff. Um. You know, it's mainly the the chefs that were teaching the classes, um, and yeah, like I, I mean, I don't know that I would do it any different. Maybe I'd do it faster. Like I've been working on this kitchen knife for like five years. You know, like maybe I should have finished by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's again, it's part of my nature is that like I want everything to be perfect, and sometimes wanting things to be perfect really, really gets in the way of just fucking getting it done. You know, and that's that's a lesson that I've had to learn and that I have to keep relearning, you know, like just getting something done, even when it's not perfect, is a step on the road, you know, whereas like sitting around and like waiting for the next idea to make it perfect, you'll be there forever. I heard uh, Kevin Smith, uh, you know, the filmmaker Kevin Smith mm-hmm. once referred to two. There are two types of people. There are the ju- people, the journey people, and the destination people. The journey people right. are the people who enjoy the journey. They enjoy what the they look outside and they're watching the show. And the destination people don't give a shit until they're there. They want the destination. That's what they want. I am a journey person. I like watching 
slow iterations, slow evolutions. I like knowing that the next one's going to be better. I like the the idea that the next yep. one's going to be better. I feel like you might be a destination person. You know what? When I was younger, I think I would have said yes to that. But the problem is that the, the destination is so unsatisfying. You get like, you're there and you're like, oh, it's amazing. And then the next day you're like, uh, yeah, okay, what, what do I do now? You know, yeah. what's, what's the next thing? Yeah. So I've kind of had to like make myself, make myself be a journey person, you know, like because enjoying the process and enjoying the, the journey, it's the only way to be happy. Like I feel like, I know, going, the, being in for the destination is like going on holiday. You get there and it's great and you enjoy it. You know, it's sunny whatever and then you kind of get bored because you don't have enough stuff to do and then you come back and you're just you know daydreaming about the the holiday again even though it wasn't necessarily that great you know um i think the journey is a much better place to to be i feel like your your video where you're fixing that fixture it was one of the last videos you've done the fixing the fixture Mm -hmm. that might have been the one video i looked at and i thought to myself this is the part that he likes. I feel yes, like instead yeah. of the resolution, I think that, it, you know, especially when you're talking to Nick on, on the XYZ podcast and you guys are talking about tool paths, I, tool paths is one of my favorite expressions that I will never use because I don't know anything <laughs> about, I don't really know anything about it. I love hearing the word tool paths because it's just like, it seems like it's a real, it's like the, it's like the scientific, it's the real talk as opposed to, it's like the real, like the cool way of saying, you know, the, <laughs> the fucking spindles moving wherever it's going, you know, doing the tool path. Right. I love tool path. When you guys talk tool path, I feel like that is your joy is finding the, the, the success in these tiny, small uh, increments of fixing the, your, your uh, being more efficient and fixing your, you know, these lot, tiny little issues that bug you. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's been a really interesting journey to like work out how to moderate that with like <laughs> getting shit done, yeah. you know, like that has always been a real struggle for me. Um, and it's interesting though, that like, I don't think that I have that same problem with software and I'm not sure why um, in why software. Think... I'm fine with like just getting shit done and, and moving on to the next thing. You know? But isn't, isn't like edit software editing is usually very quick, isn't it? I would imagine that with um, software editing would be quicker because you don't see, like we were talking about before, you don't see tools, you know, the, the, the tools aren't wearing away <laughs> or the things aren't like bolted incorrectly. So you can yeah. make edits on the quicker side. So, you, so you don't get the satisfaction of problem solving. Whereas when you're fixing that, I mean that, that one video where you're fixing that uh, fixture plate, that was a gl- I felt like it had to have taken at least a day for that whole thing. And, and the, yep. just not to mention the filming and stuff like that, but that was this, it may seem in, significant but this was his monumental satisfaction well it's interesting right because like you know i say that like the real world intrudes on on the digital world when we're talking about like machining and knife making but ultimately the real world is everywhere and even in the software world the real world gets in the way of shit just being right you know like i i have at times like so when you're programming you're basically like writing this you know language this fancy spanish or whatever right and sometimes just putting a space in the wrong place can change the the meaning of what something does. Hmm. And there have been days in my career where that one space has cost me three or four days. You're kidding me. No, absolutely, man. Like, oh. um, 
and and once you start dealing with much more complex systems, you know, so the last company I was working at, we were doing real-time sports data. And once you're dealing with like these complex systems where you have vendors that are sending you data and, you know, maybe it's always the same format, maybe not, <laughs> you know, you have to account for that. And then you have, you know, potentially thousands of servers that are all running in some, you know, warehouse in the cloud. And some of them might not behave exactly as you expect them to. And the, the, the reality creeps in, you know, it becomes a, a real shit show at times. Um, you know, and like I, I've done some some very in-depth kind of crazy projects. That's that's actually where I kind of live. You know, that that's where my, my joy is, as you said. Um, you know, like I spent six months at the company I was working at last time migrating them from one type of database server to a different type of database server. Um, and in that process, we didn't get any extra features that the user would care about. What we got was more reliability, um, more um, like automation of things being fixed automatically and decreased costs. Like I cut uh, $130,000 US a year out of their expenses. Like I decreased the expense by like 95%. Wow. Um, and like none of that has to do with like the the purity of the like the digital idea of that system. You know, it's it's all of the reality creeping in and making that system shitty. <laughs> I, it, it brings me back to I mean, it brings me back to what you're saying uh, when you were talking about it took three days to find that one space. Oh yeah. The the if you were to match that up to the knife making, the the the, the three days were your time. There wasn't like a physical. There wasn't physical waste. As opposed to if you have a problem with your DLC coding or you have mm-hmm. a problem in the shop, you you see the the for the lack of a better word that space you you haven't figured out that the space between the letters and the programming yeah. you haven't been you you see a physical result of that problem, and that must make it just infuriating. Yeah, at times. I mean, I've got a like a tool chest with the bottom drawer of this tool chest is like all of the scrap that I've currently got, you know, so like scrap blades, scrap handle scales, like that thing's full. It probably weighs like 60 pounds <laughs> of just like metal scrap and G10 scrap in, in that drawer, you know? <sighs> yeah. It's, um, it's not an easy life. <laughs> I know you don't, I don't, I, I know that you don't like an easy life, but I know that you prevail. That's the thing about when mm-hmm. I, every time, I mean, your your early videos were iconic to the point where I when people people mention you you're you're helping them in terms of the the ability to be helpful uh, with your videos and how to make knives the simplest way you and Michael Trolsky are my one two punch for like right. you know this is the these are the two guys you got to watch because they're actually going to show you in a very easy way I feel like you've overcome things I I feel like you've overcome difficulties very gracefully. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was your vision. We talked about this before, right. before the podcast. And I, yeah, you asked I, I, me if it was okay to ask me, which I appreciate. I mean, listen, one of the things I don't want people to be uncomfortable, but I know that one of your eyes is different than the other. Well, and as what? I said to you, like, I've got no problem with you asking questions. The, the only time when I get salty about it is like, you know, trolls on YouTube that are like, hey, bro, your eyes fucked up. And they're like, ah. Oh. Jeez, man, like, thanks. No one's well, ever told me that. Well, what's, well, why is your eye so fucked up? I'm sorry. I no, no, I was just born like that. <laughs> I had no choice. So what, what happened? What happened? I got in a knife fight. 
Yeah, okay, that's a good yeah, one, yeah. too. So no. what happened? Honestly, what happened? Um, I don't know. It's just a genetic abnormality. Like, it's called um, uh, strabismus, where your your eye is, like, um, not correctly aligned. And the interesting part of it is that it's, like... So I'm, I don't really have any vision out of that eye. Like, you know, if you were to hold, like, a giant sign in front of me with, like, you know, a three-foot-tall letter A, I'd probably be able to read it. But it's really, like, peripheral vision only. Like, you know, shapes and, and colors. Um, and the reason that that is, is because when you're growing up, when you're developing, your brain discards the input from that eye because it's not lined up. Like your two eyes aren't facing in the right direction. So your brain's just like, oh, that's bad data and throws it away. Um, so the, like the nerves and the neurons in your brain don't develop to actually give you vision in that eye. Um, and yeah, as far as I know, it's just like luck of the draw, just something went bad when I was you know, developing as a fetus and, and that was it. So obviously um, you don't, so obviously because you've grown up with that way, it hasn't mm-hmm. affected your, I mean, you don't, it doesn't, you don't, you can't tell if it's affected your life. Uh, yeah. I, I, no, I can't really tell. I mean, I know that I took a lot of like, uh, you know, basketballs and stuff in the face when I was a kid. Cause somebody like chucked something at me. You know, like I don't have, at that point I didn't have any death perception. Like you huh. can't have death perception with one eye. So I'd, I'd close my hands and the ball's already like touching my nose, you know? Um, and I've just, you learn to adapt, right? Like I actually have pretty good judgment of distance, um, particularly outside because my brain just like looks at the shadows of things on the ground and uses the distance on the ground to like tell me where, how far away things are. Um, but on the other hand, so we were talking about martial arts before. I went to one of the throwdowns, which is like the, the heavy sparring sessions. And uh, I ate a high kick in the face um, that like split my eye open and like just about knocked me out. And the reason for that is that I had both my hands up in a high guard in front of my face. And that means like my, my vision on the right hand side where my bad eye is wasn't that great. And the guy just like nailed me with a kick from that, that blind spot that, you know, maybe other people wouldn't have had. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's definitely been times when it's been an issue, but honestly, like the, the biggest issue that it's caused me was like, you know, in high school and primary school, just kids are dicks, (laughs) you know, kids are total dicks. Yeah. They don't have that like developed moral sense where they should be like, Oh, maybe I should be nice to that kid. You know, it doesn't, doesn't work that way that i I would think that i would think that would have been real tough definitely at times yeah but i mean yeah i don't know i don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing maybe like less trauma is always a good thing (laughs) but less trauma um, is always a good thing but i feel like you're a glutton for punishment like this makes me feel like you like to i i feel like not a glutton for punishment isn't the right word i feel like you like to you you're you you take difficult situations and i think that you prosper yes and in certain types of situation for sure like as i said like i don't like the situations where it's like existential crisis like if i think i think if someone like told me like tomorrow you've got cancer and 12 months to live like i don't think i would deal with that very well you know i don't think that's my like that that situation's not where i'm going to prosper but when it's like i don't think most people would take that very well it's it's a hard situation yeah it is a hard situation (laughs) yeah but like you know, when I'm working on a new process or a new, like that's, and it's, it's hard. Like I love the things. One of my favorite phrases is like, you can't do that. Or like that can't be done. I love doing it then, you know, like 
if there's something that's really, really difficult or, you know, so like I was talking about, uh, you know, helping that company move from one database to the other. I like, I was working on a live system during that period of time. So like if I'd fucked something up, it would have like broken the entire company for our users for like an extended period of time. It's like changing the wheels on a car while you're on the highway. You know, I love stuff like that. Like it stresses me out when I'm in the moment, but I love like doing the research, putting the systems in place, getting it right. You know, you're a fascinating guy. And and I, (laughs) I, I envy, I envy your dedication and I envy the joy that you have for your process because that's really what it is yeah and i mean it's been hard to keep that joy you know because at times i've let other things kill it you know like i've let the existential dread around the business kill that joy i've let it stop me from doing new stuff which is where that joy comes from and i think that that learning process learning to hang on to those parts and you know make sure that my strengths are acting as my strengths i think that's really important you know i think that's one of the more important things that I've learned. So what's next for Aaron Goff? What's next? Well, kitchen knife. That's, yeah. that's happening. The folding when, knife. When do you think the kitchen knife will, any prototypes will be sent out? I think that I'll have prototypes at home within a month. Um, like finished prototypes. I've got like blades and stuff at home right now. Right. And then out to customers and probably like early, early customers in probably like two months. Like that. Wow, that's fast. I see based on your scheduling, I thought maybe it was gonna be like you were gonna talk about ah oh, maybe ten years. Well, I've already had the last five years to get it. I know I figured so it's so it could be out within the next six months. Yes, yeah, hopefully. Um, you know, like things are a bit slow for me at the moment. So like I you know part of it is like I need to get the next thing happening. You know, like and you need, what's going to be the name? Broader. What's the name of the chef's knife? You, I know the resolute. The resolute <laughs> is a perfect name for this knife. I know that you have a dynamite name for the chef knife. You know what? what it was a it? lot. It was a lot harder. I don't know if I've gotten it right. Um, maybe it'll change. I'm, I'm not 100 sure. But right now, it's called the Triumvir. Triumvir. Yes. So wow. the, a triumvirate is a ruling body made of three people, three parties. A triumvir is one part of that ruling body. And the reason that I kind of came to that is because the the design of this knife is a westernized, you know, like a North Americanized Santoku, a Japanese knife. And the Santoku means three virtues. So I was trying to come up with a name that was unique, you know, that other people aren't going to like mistake for some other knife maker's work. Right. That came across with that, that theme of three, of being good at three things from the the japanese name look at you because i don't know if it's perfect listen it's it's great when i look at the triumvir and i look at the resolute they come from the same place i don't see them as being i i see your signature i'm talking about the prototypes i've seen and if you Mm -hmm. need if you need any help with you know if you need any help with like you know prototypes and and opinions um you you have my address in your file so you know i I know i don't worry buddy that's been top of mind i've been thinking about that i will be i will be trust me i will be deep in your dms with my paypal don't worry i don't get one (laughs) i'm gonna get i'm gonna get one i have to have one of them triumvirs but at the same time the, the 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 signature of your work is there you can see they don't look like they're different they look like they come from the same family Thanks. Yeah, and you know what? That was actually a bit of a struggle because, like, uh, I think one of the first posts that I ever made on my Instagram was my very first prototype kitchen knife. 
and it doesn't look like mine. It does like if you looked at it, you'd just be like, eh. You know, you wouldn't think of me when you look at that knife. Hmm. Um, so I didn't want to copy the style of the Resolute. Like, it, it shouldn't just look like our kitchen Resolute, you yeah. know? But it, it needs to have my personality in it. And that's hard. And, and interestingly, what gave it that personality wasn't designing it in the computer. And, and that's part of my process is to, like, draw it on paper and to make it by hand. Because in that process your your flavor comes through you know i'm gonna say something that's gonna be controversial i have the resolute in my hand right now Mm -hmm. i put it in the pinch position i'm always in the pinch grip position the (laughs) handle is not bad for a pinch grip position i'm just saying i'm just saying if you were to do the triumvirate mark four with the resolute mark three handle i'm not mad about it It'd be I'm okay. mad about it. It'd be okay. I'm mad about it. I, I'm feeling it right now. I'm in my car, feeling it right now. It feels great. I shouldn't say that. Well, I, I really what, like the handle said. shape on the on the kitchen knife, the, the like the stealth bomber kind of handle. Yeah, know? it definitely has that look. Well, I, it makes me wonder if 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 the, we're talking about triumvirates and three, I would imagine that the the third triumvir is the folding knife. Yes, and I don't have a name for the folding knife yet, but like they really are supposed to be like field, city, kitchen. That's that's always been the theme that I wanted. The three oh, things: the right? triad, the triad. There you go. Yeah, you really have thought this through. You're not. You're not. You're not playing at all. No, 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 not at all. Um, and wow. you know, like, I I don't want to have like two field knives, two kitchen knives, two. Like I just want one of each. Yeah. And they'll continue to evolve over time, but there's not going to be like the 2020 kitchen knife, the 2021 kitchen knife. I don't want to do that fashion shit. You know, I just want to do like my knife. Wow. What size, if you don't mind me asking, how long is the blade? Uh, it's about eight inches. It's oh, 12 perfect. inches overall. That's the perfect, that's the perfect, that's the perfect length for a kitchen knife. I think so too. Oh, yeah, no question. Yeah. I, you know, I have a, I, I had a joke. My business partner Tony, who's gonna be on the podcast in, in a couple of weeks, you and I talk, nice. and we get, we get some customers who want ten inch chef knives, mm. and I always say those people are crazy. You can't count on their opinions. They, they don't know what they're talking about. And he's just like, what are you talking? He's like, he's like, I know, I know. I said, you can't count anybody who likes a ten inch chef knife regularly. I don't think they know what they're talking about. Because you're, <laughs> you're over the side of your kitchen board. You're over the side of the cutting right. board. Unless you're cutting like whole, you know, pigs all the time. I just, I, eight inch chef knife. I used to be, you know, I went to culinary school, nine inch chef knife. And then my, my, one of my chefs, Scotty, wanted a knife. He's like, I don't want one of these long scimitars. I get eight inch chef knife. I made the eight inch chef knife. I'm like, that's the perfect size. Well, yeah, and I really like a Santoku in like an eight inch too because it gives you so much cutting edge that's close to the, the board where you can use it rather yeah. than having you know the really like tip that's going up um where you'd have to like really lift the knife off the board to to use that part of the blade um yeah we'll Very see I'm, I'm working on the the food release at the moment that's i'm working on s grinds right. let's you know. talk about food release <laughs> i i are you gonna I'm tell on... me it's bullshit i'm gonna tell you that <laughs> there's not i'm gonna tell it with peace and love Peace and love to everybody. There's not one cook I ever met who bought a knife because of food release. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. The thing that I that pains me about so like my my prototype is a full flat grind, and in pretty much all respects, it's hundred percent. I I like it. You know, the problem is like you get something that's kind of like firm 
and it's going to hold together like a potato and you got right. to cut right down the middle of the potato and then it gets halfway through and it like suctions in place. I understand. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the thing that I care about more than like, you know, if you, if you like, uh, you know, roll up like a chiffonade of like basil and you're like expecting it to fall off the blade as you right. cut like paper thin slices, like that's not going to happen. The other you thing know? I, the other thing I say to Tony is anybody who buys a knife because of a potato you have you have problems you might have problems too you might have mental problems too but well, uh, you know, you i i actually did i left like uh half an inch of uh mill scale on mm. a chef knife or maybe three quarters of an inch of the spine and that released the food yeah like that i felt like that was just enough to make a difference in in the food release but at the same time like i don't get one person on Knife Talk says, if you want food release, just use your finger and take the food off the knife. 100%. <laughs> I mean, you're always going to have to do that anyway. That's, you know. the, that's food release. Food release is using your finger and taking the food off the knife. I get yep. it. Yeah. No, and like I get that as well, but like... I don't know. You know, for me, there's. I always want to see if there's like that. That better, better. You know, like well, the here's, flat works, but like here's you know. what I think with the, in regards to you to make sense. And I, when I talk to Salem Straub, he puts the S grind. If you ever look at Salem's work, he mm. makes the S grind part of the design. Like his uh, when yep. he forge welds on his the bottom bar of, of steel, his borders are the S grind, and that is. I mean, that is right. incredible. For a guy like you who are, who's so process-driven, the S-grind makes a whole lot of sense because I, th- I think that that's your, your joy is figuring out how, I can, how you can do it as opposed to if you need it or not. A little bit, yeah. And I mean, I did spend like three hours yesterday looking at So I have like one knife at home that's like I got a prototype S-grind in it, which sucks. It's no good. And I was like, okay, so what, what's the difference between like a really good S-grind and a bad one? And I'm like drawing different geometries in CAD and trying to figure it out. And I realized that like if I just make a simple radius, you know, if it's if it's like circular, that S grind, then the transitions between the bevel and the S grind, like the channel of the S grind, are very gradual. So when I'm hand finishing, they're going to get washed out. When the food is like getting pushed over that transition, it it's fairly easy for it to follow it and like not to break the vacuum. So the next one that I'm trying out is actually like three radiuses and that's one of the things that i can do on the cnc that i just never ever be able to do by hand which is like the start and end like the the transition points where the s grind meets the bevel are actually quite sharp it's it's quite a small radius there and then the bottom of the channel is a really large radius it's quite flat so that should hopefully mean that the food has a much harder time making that transition and therefore is more likely to to come off the blade you're not um, saying you're going to do three fullers for the most part. No, no, it's one. It's one fuller. Okay. But the so you can imagine like if you use a like a small wheel on your bell grinder to make right. a fuller, then it's just a single radius. Like it's it's a constant right. radius. This is going to be a compound radius with three different curves in it. Wow. Um, but again, that's that's one of those things that I that it's fun because I can only do that on CNC. Like I I I could. There's no way I could do that on a bell grinder. Look at you. You are a fascinating we'll individual. You make me nervous because thinking right. about all this stuff, I, the, I tried an S grind one on a grinder and I was just like, it ain't for me, man. I, I, right. I went all over the place. I went all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Shit's hard. 
(laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. And not to mention shit's hard is one of the things that you've done. And we're going to get out of here pretty soon is you (laughs) you do all your C and one of the things that got you back into your shop is that you do all your CNC work with the steel heat treated, which seems like it's, it was a game changer for you, but it also seems like it's scary. It is scary. And it's interesting because like the, the companies that are best at, so that process is called hard milling and you're using, you know, tungsten carbide tools, which are really hard. They're like, you know, 70 Rockwell to cut steel. That's also really hard, like 62 Rockwell in my case, 62 and a half. And the companies that are really, really good at hard milling are the companies that do um, mold and dye work. So they're doing like plastic injection molds and that kind of stuff. And the reason that that became a thing is because um, China started making injection molds. And, you know, if you make like an injection mold for a toothbrush, then there's going to be like 20 cavities. So, you know, each mold's going to make like 20 toothbrushes, right? And you want that like shiny finish on your, on your toothbrush. That means those mold cavities in this huge block of hardened steel have to be like mirror finished. Because whatever finishes in the mold is going to get transferred to the plastic. Right. So, you know, if you were to make that mold in like the 90s in America, it would, you know, it'd be like a $120,000 mold, a $200,000 mold. Because you got this huge block of super expensive steel. You have to do all this machining on it. And then some poor bastard is going to have to come in with a, a mold polishing stone and hand polish every single inch of that mold, you know. So then people found they could send the, that kind of work to China and get a much uh, less expensive mold because labor is such a huge cost of it and labor over there is much less expensive. So American companies and European companies had to start working out how to do this competitively. And that drove this whole industry of like CNC machines that are capable of like sub micron accuracies where you can like hard mill a mirror finish into a block of hardened steel, you know? So I've taken a lot of inspiration from that industry, but like those companies, they're not going to tell you their secrets. Right. You know, like they're, they're making a lot of money off, off doing that, you know? So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a bit of like a, a dark art, a bit of a secret art. You know, you're a fascinating guy. You always have been. I've been a fan for a long, long time. That's why when I was on Knife Talk originally and Craig and I were talking, I said, you got to get Aaron Goff on Knife Talk. Yeah, He's I the guy. that. He, no, you've inspired many, many knife makers. And I know I get messages from people saying, I can't wait to hear Aaron. His videos got me into knife making. My joy of knife making is because of Aaron Goff's videos. You have been inspiring to a lot of people. And I hope you feel, I hope you understand how much you mean to a lot of people and what you mean to me. I mean, you're, you're, you're on my Mount Rushmore of information <laughs> of, 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 uh, trust me, you know, her outside information. I mean, you're, you're one of the top video guys out there well i just feel very lucky to get to you know talk to you and consider you a friend you know like i yeah, think of course the community around knife making is is you know a big part of what's kept me in it and now that we've gotten the whole eye thing out of the way i think we're much closer now <laughs> don't you think oh absolutely yeah there you go anyone who can give me my friends are always giving me i say like oh yeah i i saw that the other day and they're like don't you mean you had an eye on it damn like, Come your on, friends dude. are brutal your yeah, friends yeah, are brutal they're cold. I'll never, I'll never make fun of your eye as a friend. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I just, I wanted. I, in my mind, I, in my mind, I thought maybe it gave you a headache. But that's all I could think of. I was like, I was wondering. I didn't realize that you were actually. It was blind. But I thought maybe it was going to be a headache situation. 
No, I mean it would kind of suck if I'd had a headache for thirty five years. I guess. I yeah, but I mean you're like I said, you know, I think you like it. I think you like uh, to succeed out of difficulties. I think you rise to the occasion. I think that Aaron Goff is someone who I think that you're. I think honestly you're eternally optimistic, and I think that you like a little bit of. Uh, I think you like a little struggle. I don't think you mind a little struggle. I think that everyone has their struggles. You know, like everyone. No, but you like it though. I think you like it a little bit. I think you go crazy if you don't. You know, like uh, one of my goals, I, I do, I, you know, tradition for my family, I do like the New Year's Eve, you know, the, the pledges, whatever they call them. Resolutions. resolutions. Yeah, How do you forget my... resolutions? That's the name of your, almost the name of your night for Christ's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I made a resolution a couple of years ago was to be more embracing of chaos. Yeah. You know, because like everything's fucking chaos. Like everything wants to screw you over at every second of every day, you know, so like. I think you have to just, I don't know, with programming especially, if you're not willing to, like, embrace the madness, um, you know, because like I said, like, you could spend three days looking for a space space bar in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, like, there, I think there is definitely people that, like, they never get into programming because it just drives them insane within the first little while of trying to trying to do it. And then, you know, so I think that mentality has has come across into the rest of my life. Aaron Goff, he's done it all. Guys, I want you to go to follow Aaron Goff on Instagram, Goff Customs. Is it Goff it's Customs? Aaron, oh, it's just Aaron.Goff on Instagram. Aaron.Goff on Instagram. But you got to find him. And then go to Goff Customs on YouTube, subscribe, mm-hmm. learn something. If you're not a, a lot of my night, a lot of the people who are watching this podcast are not knife makers. I will link. Uh, some of your videos that we talked about on the show notes of the show, definitely go watch his. If you ever wanted to know how you have to make, how you make a knife, Aaron's the guy to watch. Go buy yourself some Resolute Mark Threes because it's worth it. I am stupefied at how great this is. And I'm I want you guys to, oh, dude, you're the, you're the best. This, is, this exceeded my expectations and I've been waiting for a while. <laughs> listen, no, I everybody. That, I appreciate you, Aaron. And listen, everybody, go out and live your lives everybody go uh get yourselves thank you once again to ak interactive go get yourself a new website ak interactive backslash full blast for 10 percent off axe wax go to axewax.us get yourself some wax for that axe and um with that said i'm going on vacation and before i go on vacation i'm bumping up a couple ones i'm gonna have nico tavernese is coming in a couple days and we're gonna do my vacation episode downward spiral is happening again and then after that my business partner Tony Ayazi is going to be in here, and we're going to have a we're going to have a board meeting. We're going to have a board meeting live. So, if if it ain't Friday, guys, something and I'm not. If there's a podcast isn't up, my podcast isn't up on Fridays. There's a problem. Oh, and go listen to subscribe to the XYZ podcast. Aaron and Nick do a great job. It's if you especially if you want to learn about um, CNC, they talk about space too. They talk about all sorts of stuff. They talk about their lives, shitty weeks, all that. Go definitely mm-hmm. listen to CNC uh, XYZ podcast. Go subscribe and give them a good yep. review. They're great guys. Aaron, XYZ dot CNC. It is XYZ dot CNC because otherwise you get something else. Yeah. Aaron, thank <laughs> you once again. You're you're awesome, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I'll see you next week, everybody. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. 
It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.